Welcome to episode number 232. I am super excited for today's episode for a couple of reasons. But one, we are going to be diving into favorite tomato varieties because I am always on the hunt for the new best and greatest tomato variety of wines that I have not tried before. I think every gardener is always eager to hear about a must-have one that you haven't done before. It's kind of what keeps gardening fresh and exciting when you've been doing it for a really long time. But the other reason I'm super excited for today's episode is one for today's guest. Today is totally a guest episode. But two, it's on a topic that I am testing out and trying in my garden, but I don't have as much experience in. And I love getting to pick the brain of someone who has done what I'm wanting to do so that I can save myself from pitfalls and that I have the exact steps so that I can implement it in my garden. I was com totally taking notes, I kid you not, during today's episode. So I am super excited because I think it's going to help you and give you some great tips in your garden as well. Now, for any of the show notes or resources for today's episode, links, you're going to want to go to melissaknorris.com forward slash 232. So the number 232, because this is episode number 232. If you were listening last week, then you already know who my guest is for today, and it is Joe Lample. So without further ado, let's dive straight in to this episode. Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast, Joe. I am so excited to have you on today's episode. <laughs> Likewise, ditto. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we share a lot of the same passions as most gardeners do, especially those who are geared towards obviously food production with vegetable gardening and using organic methods. And mm. so I always like to start out for those who may or not be familiar with you, though I have a feeling a lot of my listeners are <laughs> probably familiar with you because you have your own amazing podcast, The Joe Gardner Show, as well as the Growing a Greener World TV show, which is mm -hmm. all... all really awesome. But for those who maybe aren't as familiar or don't know with your own garden, mm. where your gardening zone kind of your gardening, you know, practice what what the state of the Joe garden looks like <laughs> on an average year and kind of that type of thing, what you focus on growing and, and just give us a little bit of like the state of your garden. I love it. Okay, happy to do that. So I'm in zone 7B, which is uh, Atlanta area. I am north of downtown Atlanta, North Northeast by about 30 miles. So it's a straight shot downtown. But where I live, it's a five acre uh, farm setting, really. I live in a kind of an equestrian part of Atlanta. And so everybody around me, thank goodness, has land. And so I'm able to have my garden and, and not be, you know, in the way of anybody else and hopefully don't get any drift from other people like herbicides and things. But I have a big raised bed garden. It's, um, probably about 45 by 80 feet and there's 16 large raised beds. And so that's where I grow food year round. So thankfully here where I live, uh, as we speak here, uh, you know, every bed is full of just everything I love to grow. And honestly, even though I grow year round and I love growing my tomatoes, really, if I had to choose one season over another, I would choose fall gardening for food because it's just that all those leafy crops and the really healthy, delicious things that I love to eat combined with the fact that you have lower humidity, fewer pests, less disease, 
and it's, you know, it just feels more pleasant outside on top of it. So I'm a happy fall gardener. So it's a very busy, very productive garden and, it's, and we grow way more than my family of four can eat. So we'd love to give it away and share it with food pantries and, and anybody that, you know, wants to come get some. So uh, if any of your listeners live in the Atlanta area, come on over. Oh, I love that. You know, I feel honestly that gardeners are so open-handed both with their knowledge mm. and with their extra produce. I think it's awesome. So I'm curious though. So gardening zone 7B, mm-hmm. what are your first and last average frost dates usually? Yeah. April 15th is our, uh, supposedly our, um, last risk of frost. Although I, we, I don't think we've seen frost on April 15th in a, you know, a lot of years. Okay. So, uh, yeah. And then, um, uh, right around, um, you know, I don't know the last frost date or the first frost date in the fall. I think it's probably sometime in November, but I don't really pay attention as much to that because what I'm already growing for the fall garden has been planted around, um, mid early September for seedlings and maybe seeds, uh, three weeks before that. So end of August or so. And so by the time you get to that frost time, you know, everything that I'm growing is happy to take a frost, you know? So I don't really pay attention to that. I know that's a a long-winded answer to your question, but it caused me to think about, well, you know, I don't really know my, uh, you know, that fall frost date, but it really doesn't matter based, you know, the lack of sensitivity to cold weather that uh, everything that I grow at that time of year uh, is able to put up with. Okay, awesome. I love that. So our gardening zones are just a little bit different. We're actually, technically I am a 7B as well, but my frost dates, I usually can't plant warm weather stuff till May and then I can sometimes get an early Mm. frost like September, but Mm. I'm with you. Like I'm still harvesting Brussels sprouts and I'm still harvesting kale, even though we've had, you know, multiple hard frosts and all of that. And so, yeah, that fall, it almost feels like for me, especially now that we're almost at the time of this recording, just scooting into winter by the calendar date. Doesn't mm-hmm. it almost feel like cheating? Like I almost <laughs> feel like I'm cheating that I still get to harvest fresh fruit from the garden this late into the year and into that uh, weather. I know, and I but I love it. Like for example, last night, you know, um, I, I I like to do a lot of the cooking for dinner, and uh, I always like to have my vegetables along with whatever we're cooking as a protein if we even do that. But to go out in the garden and cut off a couple heads of big fat delicious broccoli, uh, you know, and then when your kids like it too because it tastes so sweet and so different than what you might get in the grocery store it's like it doesn't get any better than that oh i completely agree and especially like the brussels sprouts and the kale yes once they go through those frosts like the flavor different oh i'm totally with you yeah takes on a completely different nuance when you're cooking it and flavor and it's like this is how it's supposed to be it's really hard to go back or eat it at a restaurant you're like no (laughs) well you know there's a difference when like i just said like when you're my my older teenage two daughters don't don't even want to give the time of day to something you know, a vegetable that maybe came from the grocery store. It just doesn't taste like they've learned that it should taste. So uh, when they have it coming out of the garden, they can't get enough of it. But, you know, coming from the store, no thanks. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. And I've noticed the same thing with my own children. So I love that that you're seeing that too. So I love hearing about your garden because I don't do a lot of raised bed gardening. I do do some. We're lucky to have soil that I can do in-ground gardening in pretty well. But one of the things that you did, and I love this because even though you have a large raised bed gardening, (laughs) you experimented. And I'm a huge experimenter in the garden. Mm. I love this. So 
and I geek out about it. So yeah. you did some tomatoes and grow bags this year. So you want to give us yeah. just kind of a little bit of the, the backstory on, on why you decided to do that. And then I am really curious to know the state of that experiment, how you liked it. Are you going to do it again? And just all that stuff. Yes. So I love that question because, you know, it's the first year for the reasons you just said, I really have never needed to grow beyond my massive raised beds. But because I'm very uh, aware of crop rotation and the need to do that, especially down here with all the pest and disease pressure that we get in the high humid area of the Southeast, I grow so many tomatoes and I kind of run out of room because I grow so many. I don't have an ability to, you know, do a crop rotation over four or five growing seasons. So they end up going back in the same beds. And over time, I've noticed I've picked up, you know, some soil borne diseases that I really can't starve out if I keep putting back tomatoes into the same beds. So I said, well, what am I going to do about that? So I took a, um, a note from my good friend, Bree Arthur, who is a very accomplished food grower and horticulturalist in Raleigh, North Carolina. And she was using, um, they're not technically grow bags, but they're grow, they're pots that have holes in them on the sides are called root maker pots. And so the premise behind that is that uh, the roots grow out to the edge of the pots but the roots stop growing because they come in contact with air. And, and rather than continuing to spile around inside of the container, like if you were doing it in a solid plastic pot. And the, the thing that kept blowing my mind, as you probably are aware, if you were following that, is I just couldn't get my head around the fact that these are only three-gallon containers for tomato growing. And I grow indeterminate heirloom tomatoes. They can grow, you know, like a Jack and the Beanstalk, yeah. and they're going to certainly need the root space for that. But I kept asking Brie, are you sure this is going to work? Are you sure? And she, you know, she's had, she said the best success she's ever had because she has um, root knot nematodes growing in her soil. So she has no choice but to grow them in containers. So she said, yes, I've had greater success in this than anything I've ever tried. So I said, okay, well, it's good enough for you. It's good enough for me. So anyway, I, I put uh, 15 indeterminate tomato plants into these 15 different root maker pots. And... Um, watered them as I could and used a, a composted soil mix from a product that you can buy in the Southeast called Soil Cube. It's basically off of a sod farm and it's army listed and it's really good stuff. So that was my sole soil medium for growing my tomatoes. And then I said, well, gosh, these are just containers. I need to get drip irrigation hooked up to all of these guys so you know they don't dry out. Well, I never got around to that, but I would water it when I would go out to the garden as I could, but with a busy travel schedule for that time of year with a show, wasn't getting back there that much. And yet, every time I came back and looked at those plants, they were just looking so good. And water as I could, but like I said, they didn't have drip irrigation, but they were really healthy and they were producing, they were putting on fruit quickly. Now, the one thing they didn't do, they didn't get as big as my indeterminates that were in my big raised bed garden. My beds are 18 inches high and three or four feet wide. So they have lots of room to grow and amazing soil. But yet, these three-gallon root maker pots were producing very productive heirloom indeterminate tomatoes. And I think that if I do it, when I do it again, I should say, I'm going to go with a larger size because I think the, the main thing that held them back was the size of the container in that the root mass could only be so big. And it's, it, you know, if it can't get bigger, how is it going to support a much larger plant? And then I'm going to make sure I get my drip irrigation installed. And I think those two changes are going to make a huge difference after an already successful harvest, considering that they kind of thrived on neglect. 
Okay. I love this. I love how detailed you are too. Mm. And I find that fascinating about them hitting the air. I actually have not heard of those pots before. So I'm going to be checking them out. I think that's really interesting. And so because they weren't able to get quite as big, but they didn't get root bound, which is awesome. um, Did you feel that I'm assuming that you did have a lesser harvest yield than Mm. the other tomatoes, just because the size was a little bit more limited? Is that, was that accurate or? Exactly right. Exactly right. And you know what else I didn't even mention? I really didn't, um, I don't even know if I gave them one supplemental feeding. I use typically fish emulsion and um, I'm, I don't even recall if I gave them any food. So even more so, uh, you know, I'm, if I did a third change, that would certainly be it. And I would even get, uh, you know, much better harvest. But yeah, that was the one thing in that I, uh, I, I did get a good harvest, but it, it did not compare because, you know, again, I had a lot more foliage and branching and everything else in the in-ground, I'm sorry, in the raised bed garden. but um, I cannot complain. I was really blown away. Yeah. Okay. I love this. And I'm like you here in the Pacific Northwest, I should say with my tomatoes, I did try growing them in containers prior, mainly because we're usually so wet here that you right. cannot avoid blight. I mean, it's right. just no matter what, what you do, it's, it's going to be present usually. So we do ours in uh, basically a high tunnel. I grow all my tomatoes in a high tunnel and that way mm. I've been able to keep it. And, and I have to caveat I don't do crop rotation because the soil's always been covered with tomatoes, but that is the, it's like the exception. Any other time I'm like, you have to rotate just like you were saying, because it's true. Those you have to, and it's a great way with using crop rotation to try to starve out naturally a lot of those things and just eliminate that. So I think Mm -hmm. that these pots are fabulous. One, if like you are needing to do that crop rotation, But secondly, especially if people have, you know, patios or more urban environments and they might not have the yard space, but they've got like a back deck or something that they can grow tomatoes in. And honestly, this sounds like a much better solution when I've tried to use like five gallon buckets or Mm -hmm. those type of things. Because like you said, with the roots. So anyways, I'm like geeking out all kinds of excited because I had heard about your experiment, but I didn't realize the specifics of the pot you were using. So that's awesome. Now I have to... Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no problem. I would, you just, I, I was going to say that um, even though the pot that I was using, um, I only used because it was recommended by Bree, uh, you know, there are other types of pots that would work as well. Like a fabric pot would really have the same premise and that when the root gets to that point, it's, it's porous enough so the root can work its way in between the weave and, and hit air, right? So okay. it's not going to become root bound either. It's going to air prune itself as well once that, re, once that root comes in contact with air. So the root maker pots are, you know, they're not cheap, but they're not expensive. I think I, I paid around $7 a, a three-gallon container, but they're totally reusable. Every single one of them is completely intact and in great shape. So I see them being in use for years to come if I stick with that size. But, um, you know, it's, it's a one-time investment, but it's well worth the money. Right. Well, I'm going to take a guess. I bet peppers would grow really well in that smaller size. And then, and I do crop rotation with my peppers too. Um, And then you could do the tomatoes and the larger one. Totally agree with that. 
Awesome. Okay. Now I have to ask you though, because I am a geek about tomatoes. <laughs> I, I think I think we I think we already established that. So what are and I only do heirloom. Uh-huh. I'm right there with you, tomatoes as well. So what are your favorite uh, variety? Do I know how do you pick just uh, one? But are your top? Give me your top of, of right. your favorite. Black creme always is easy to roll off my tongue because I can't get enough black creme. To put it in perspective, the type of tomato I'm after, I like a really strong full body cup of black coffee and i like a really spicy dark red wine okay so i like i like a lot of complexity to what i'm drinking or eating and so the tomato is my version of strong bold black coffee or a really good um full-bodied wine okay so black creme cherokee purple uh are, are the kind of the reds or the dark reds that i really like the most uh, or something else with the word black in it. That seems to be a real attractant to me. And I've not yet been disappointed by that. Okay. But, you know, I've really gotten into a lot of different varieties because, you know, every year when you're growing 35 or more tomato plants, and I like to mix them up, at the most I'll plant two of the same. But other than that, I'd like to keep trying. But I love Mr. Stripey. I love Mortgage Lifter. I love, um, uh, gosh drawn a blank because I grow so many different things. Uh, I did um, um, Kellogg's breakfast this year and it was just, they were huge. Um, Dr. Weish's yellow was another really delicious one. And the funny thing is, you know, I talk about how I like these really full bodied tomatoes and then I'll, I'll like do a blind taste testing. Cause I'll, you know, on a harvest day, I'll have lots of different varieties coming off and then I'll take pictures of them and I'll <laughs> talking about a tomato geek. I measure them. So I, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> right. So I document everything and I, and I take notes on my day one app on my phone. So that way I've got my, my, you know, phone's taking the picture and I'm dictating notes and I'm taking pictures of the ruler next to the tomato and all of that. You never know when you're going to need that kind of stuff. Right. So, but then I do the taste test and it's like, gosh, you know, I'm not sure which one I'm eating, but this is delicious too. And then I'll look and see what I'm eating. And it's, you know, like a, a green one or a yellow one or something. So you cannot, this is proven, you cannot tell the taste of a tomato by its color for sure. And um, anyway, I'm always trying new ones, but I like Mr. Stripey, if I didn't say that one, I, I can't get enough of those. Okay. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, you've given me some new ones. I've definitely done the, the Cherokee and the black creme. And then I am a big food preserver. So we- Oh yeah. I do. I grow and can all of my family of four, all of our tomato sauce, salsa, stewed tomatoes, you mm. know, pasta, marinade, all the stuff. And so mm. I do um, about 20 of a paste tomato. And my favorite paste tomato for sauce has been the San Marzano Lungo number I two. I hear that. I hear that. I got to do that. I don't. You got to try that. that one. Yeah. And yeah. for sauces, it's, it's awesome. Actually, it is very good too. Like I'll even use it for fresh eating and salads and stuff, but you know, my primary or just by itself, but my primary reason for doing it is because it's prolific. And then the flavor is awesome in sauces. It's already thick and meaty. I don't have to simmer it forever. Um, but I'm, I'm like you, I always like to have some fun ones in there just for the fresh eating and just to try out new varieties. So I, I have literally, I'm taking notes and I'm doing, I'm going to try the Mr. Stripey because I haven't tried that one. I don't even know if I've heard of it actually. So now I'm super intrigued and I got to go check it out and get my seeds ordered because I'll be starting my tomatoes seedlings indoors as well. Then it- well, it's, it's so pretty too, because it's, um, it's like, it's got like rainbow colors in it. It's, it's <gasps> orange and pink and it's got yellow coming up from the bottom. It's oh. just a gorgeous. It, you know, even if you never ate it, it's the prettiest one 
that I think I grow. And of course, I did not mention Sun Gold. That seems to be a kind of a given for anybody that's growing a cherry variety. That one is absolutely my, it may be my all-time favorite in, even over the full-sized um, heirlooms. But I will say the other one that I should have mentioned, this past year I grew um, black brandy wine. And oh my gosh, it was the biggest tomato I think I've ever grown. And it was also like the most delicious. It took two hands to hold it up so I could get wow. a picture of it. Yeah, it filled, it filled both of my hands, my medium to medium large size hands in, in its, uh, you know, its total size. So that okay, was so now my tomato list just got a lot longer <laughs> for this year. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah, it is. Okay. Thank, thank you so much. I was really curious about that. I wanted to know how your experiment went. And of course, all those varieties, because I love trying new ones and, and mm. finding new favorites. Uh, but one of the topics that you have got a lot of experience in that is newer to me. And so I really wanted to pick your brain mainly for selfish reasons. Um, <laughs> and That's that, why we do these things, right? Isn't right? that why we do our podcast? Yes, it is for me, definitely. I get <laughs> to learn too. so much, so much, and, and get to share it at the same time with other people, which is awesome. So you are a proponent of doing the, the no-tilling method with the garden, and um, I'm doing an experiment. Like I said, I'm super into doing experiments and testing things out. So we have a fairly large, um, it's about a 20 by 30 foot um, in-ground vegetable garden where I do everything except my tomatoes because they're in, in my high tunnel. Yeah. But, um, so normally we'll do either cover crops or I'll do manure because we raise all of our own meat. So I've got cattle and chicken and all that kind of mm -hmm. manure to do composting and leaves and all that fun stuff. So usually I'll do like a cover crop or I'll do some sheet mulching on the garden during the winter months. And then we'll just do a rough till in of whatever hasn't composted all the way down in the spring right, before right. spring planting. Right. Um, so I do use a tiller. It's a, a light kind of like, you know, surface till, but it is still yeah. till. So this past spring, I did a soil test. So I had all the base, you know, of everything in the garden and half of the garden I did with wood chips um, and then the other half I left bare. And so I'm kind of testing out before I commit to doing the entire garden and no-tilling it all and kind of seeing how, how things are. Um, and so far, I won't be doing my soil test until we come a little bit further into the season to really, to see that way, like on a very, you know, macro, micronutrient <laughs> level. Exactly. Right. Um, but I would love for you to talk more to me about it because I'm like ready to be like, let's like jump all in and try this. And mm -hmm. my husband is like, hey, for 20 years, we've been doing it this way. My grandpa did it this way. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of like at this, like, he's like, okay, I'll give you half and you can test that half and then and we'll kind of see. So we're working together, but I would love, um, you know, like tips and pointers. And for those people who maybe are like me or a little bit more like my husband who aren't quite sure about that method, like, yeah, yeah just, just tell me all the stuff I need to know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, we know a lot more now than we did 20 years or more ago about soil science. So there's a lot more information that we have about what's going on in the soil. But a couple of really easy things I think people can relate to, first of all, is that um, the weed seeds. I mean, you should have a lot fewer weeds if you avoid tilling because we know that many weed seeds need light to germinate and there are millions of weed seeds just under the surface that aren't getting exposed to light and therefore they are not germinating. But when we're tilling, we're certainly bringing up tons of those dormant seeds to the surface and then we're dealing with weeds. Now, yes, you can cover that with sheet mulch or 
you know, wood chips or something like that and suppress a lot of that. So you can get away with some of that. But the, the thing to me and for many that really matters about not tilling is to preserve the soil structure. Because if we allow the microbes and the, and the soil organisms to do what they do, they colonize that soil and they create natural passages for soil drainage and the fungal hyphae is intact and the humus is there, that sticky substance that, that helps the soil particulates stick together in the right size and shape and create those air pockets and, and still retain enough moisture and yet allow moisture to not stand in one place. So you've got kind of the best of all worlds when you allow mother nature to do that with the organisms in the soil. But when we till, we disrupt all of that down to a certain level. And the thing about it is, it seems like we're doing a good thing. And I, I used to till when I was hosting Fresh from the Garden on DIY Network, teaching people how to grow a vegetable garden. The first thing we always did was till the garden. And yeah, we had a great garden too, but nothing like, I've had in the last 20, 15 years or so, because the roots, first of all, for the in-ground garden beds that I have where I don't till, and I don't till my raised beds, of course, but the, the roots are able to get down as far as they want to go versus if you till, you have what's a phenomenon, what is called tiller pan. So as the tines are cutting through that top six inches of soil, they're basically pulverizing everything exposing it to lots of air. So any organic matter that you have in the soil to begin with is being consumed rapidly because it's burning in place. So you're losing not only tons of that organic matter because the oxygen is being infused into that soil, which is what those, what, what that, what needs to happen for decomposition to take place. But the problem is it's decomposing what we want to stay there. You're releasing a lot of carbon and you're burning up a lot of nitrogen and nutrients that you would rather have being available in the soil rather than just going up into the atmosphere. So that right there, not to mention the fact that you're chomping up a bunch of worms and things like that. Now the soil has a chance to recover. It's not as though you're creating permanent damage, but every year that you don't till you're building on the previous years and the networks that are in place and all that soil integrity that doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time and, and to me, every year is better than the year before as far as how my soil improves because I'm not tilling, but I'm top dressing. So as I add organic matter on top via coffee grounds, composted chicken manure, shredded leaf mulch, et cetera, it's being taken down. So, so the organisms in the soil are doing my tilling for me, but in a kinder, gentler way that's preserving the integrity of the soil without any of the detrimental aspects that come from tilling. Okay. I love that. And that makes so much sense. I actually never thought about that it was releasing the nitrogen and the carbon into the air faster when you yeah. were, I didn't realize that. So that I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. And okay, so here's my next question. <laughs> so because normally that's what we do in the spring, like I said, anything that from when we have been, you know, either cover crops and or sheet mulching over the winter months to protect the, the soil that's mostly barren, except for the winter crops, fall crops that I that I still have in there, but that's not the full garden. In the spring, we normally, you know, till, and then you've got like this smooth, you know, this smooth, clean slate, so to speak. And I do crop rotation in my in-ground vegetable garden. So then I'm putting, you know, some things in hills, some things in rows, et cetera, you know, different planting patterns mm -hmm. every year. And mm -hmm. so with that freshly tilled soil, it's very easy to, to make all of these different areas. Yeah. So, and this is just obviously because I have not done a complete no-till before. So bear with me. Mm -hmm. So when you are going to plant 
again, you just are one, you're continually doing sheet mulching on mm -hmm. top and like adding layers. So then when you're going to, and mainly this is my question, I guess, for direct sewing. So when you're direct sewing, because I've always done it in bare dirt, uh -huh. walk, walk me through with the no-till method, how you're direct sewing most of your plants. Are you just pulling back all of the, these layers until you hit, I guess, what would be bare dirt? Or how, how are you sewing when you're doing your direct sewing? Right. So my uncomposted top layer, my mulch, let's say it's my shredded leaves, they're already semi-composted. When I put anything down, for example, I'm not, well, I have, I just don't typically anymore use like uh, arborist wood chips, although I love them and I use them in my, all my landscape beds all around my property. I don't necessarily use those in my vegetable beds because I'm a freak and a geek about using shredded leaves as my favorite all-time mulch because it, when it breaks, I, I just, I'm taking a little side detour getting to your question. Yeah. But, you know, we're in the time of year where I'm collecting, I'm spending a couple Saturdays in the fall driving around my small area here, my community, picking up everybody's leaves where they put them into the compostable paper bags and they leave them on the curb. Well, I put out a post on social media that week that's ideal for that. And I say, hey, can I have your leaves? And then everybody gets in touch with me and I get a great response and I go get all these leaves. And like, so two Saturdays ago, I ended up with 350 bags of um leaves. And so then I'll shred them up and I'll just pour them into a big kind of a fence corral over the winter. Uh -huh. And so by the time spring comes along, I've got semi-composted shredded leaves that are just like, they're the most incredible thing to work with when you pick them up in your hands and you just spread them out over your plants, or over your soil as a top dressing. And then you plant into them. Like if it's seedlings, you're just pulling it away and you're putting your seeds in place. But if of seedlings, but if it's seeds, as you're asking me about direct sowing, then I would I would basically pull it far enough away so that I don't have any chance of those, that thickness of the shredded leaves inhibiting germination. So I would have great, greater exposure to the air and to the light and to the water and make that area for direct sowing. And then as the seedlings got big enough, then I would start pushing that mulch back in place. And so they're good to go. Um, but I never have to deal with really bulky, hard material that would make it difficult to put okay. even direct sow. Uh, even, you know, using a direct sow method. Okay. I kind of like this leaf, leaf thing because uh, we have almost 15 acres and a lot of that is forested. Some is with evergreens, but there's quite a few. I've got maples and alder and different leaf dropping and then a fruit trees, etc. Okay. So you're basically just creating a compost pile, but it's just shredded leaves. So you have a, a leaf shredder, I'm assuming you have or do you I, rent one I, or how does that work? Well, I mean, all of the above, I don't rent one. I don't have a leaf shredder. I have a mulch, a mower with a bagging attachment. And so my method oh. right now, and there's not only one way to do this. And okay. that's the thing. I, I really do want to maybe invest or rent a, a chipper shredder and try that. But I've just found that there's pros and cons to every method. And so for me, I guess the easiest thing that I have to work with is to take my mower, my mower and, and mow over, set it on the highest deck setting and just mow over the leaves when they're dry, not wet, because then it would bog it down if it were wet. And then they just get chopped up and sucked into the bags of the mower, you know, attachment. And then it's golden. It's like 10, 10 bags of whole leaves. Like if you were to collect the leaves in those leaf bags, 10 bags of those breaks down to, you know, one bag when you shred them. So you get so, like a 10 to one breakdown of them. Okay. And then, um, then they go in the the corral. I'll turn them once or twice, maybe during the winter time, but 
but they just basically self biodegrade, not completely because I don't want them to, I don't want them to turn into pure compost. I want them to be still mulch. But while they're in the garden through that summertime, they become, you know, they, they break down more because they're exposed to more light and air. And, um, it just, it, it's improving the soil. It's doing its job as a mulch along the way, disease suppression, weed suppression, moisture retention, soil mediation, temperature wise, and all of those things you want mulch to do. And then it's breaking down at the end of the season and you don't even need to think about it. You've just improved your soil too. So it's incredible. I'm really excited about this because I do like a big old compost pile with all the, like I said, we've got all the, the stuff just naturally here with the livestock to do, you know, full circle. So I normally do a big compost we used old wooden pallets to make a big corral, just like you're saying. Yeah. So I love, it'd be very easy for me to do this with the leaves. And I love the practicality of using the lawnmower. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is, that's exactly the way I'm like, whatever I've already got on hand that I can just put to use, like, yeah. let's do it. So I love that. So you're basically just putting down this leaf mulch layer on the garden in the springtime after it's had, you know, time mm -hmm. to go down. And so you're just basically doing then an application once a year and about how thick? About two inches. My spring crops go in. So let's just say that's mid-April. Uh, you know, I'll put my seedlings in and then I'll come right behind it with a nice two inch layer of shredded leaf mulch. And then when they're coming out and for me, I basically use sometime in August to change out my garden because here we get, you know, the, even as an organic gardener, there's, you know, still pest and disease pressure that does a number on your tomato plants by then. So they're, much less productive at that point, And I'm really, I've had enough. So I'm ready to change it out and get ready for fall. So all that comes out and goes in the compost bin, unless it's super diseased and then I trash it. And then I, um, I put my fall crops in or direct. sow, or add my seedlings a little bit later. And then the mulch goes in again. So it's for me, it's two times a year, right at the time that my plants or seeds go in. Okay. Perfect. Okay. I'm, I'm really excited about this one. So I think I'm going to try one of the things that I've noticed so far, and it's not even been a full year with my wood chip experience experiment is they are a lot heavier. I mm -hmm. haven't noticed because I didn't work them into the soil. I just laid them on top. So I haven't, I didn't notice, I should say in this summer's crops and then the fall crops that are in that area, I didn't notice what a nitrogen deficiency, I should say, on, on any of them yet. But I do know that with the wood chips, that's kind of a reason I've been hesitant to use them. But with using the leaves, you're not going to have um, the potential, I don't feel like, for the nitrogen draw that you do with the wood chips. So I'm really excited about this. Well, do get excited about it because you'll love it. I write a lot about it. And I'm, I'm just a big disciple about this. But as far as, you know, whether it's wood chips or shredded leaves or whatever, if you're using it as a mulch layer, both are going to be breaking down over time, but they're not going to deplete nitrogen from the soil so much. The only compact, the only, the only depletion of nitrogen that is going to happen is within the top one sixteenth of an inch at the top soil surface where the, the non-biodegraded organic matter is coming in contact with a nitrogen source. So that would be in your soil. But if you were to turn it in, as you said, you don't do, if you had turned your wood chips, your fresh wood chips into the soil or tilled them in, you would have had huge nitrogen depletion at that point because it's all mixed in with your nitrogen rich soil and you would have had a big problem. But by just laying it on top as mulch, you don't run that risk. So you could use your fresh wood chips on top and not worry about nitrogen depletion. Uh, it's, it's a common misconception that people have in thinking that they're going to get their nitrogen robbed from the soil, but it just, it's been scientifically proven through the University of Washington and other institutions that that just doesn't happen. 
Okay, I love that. And I do use wood chips, especially on my perennial plants, actually, for a lot of different reasons. And I've had great success there. Just using it in the annual vegetable garden has been a very different, um, a different thing that I've just been really a little bit hesitant, I guess, to, to fully go on in. So because I have had good success yeah. the other way, but I love saying that you did it. Okay, this is the change. And this is the difference that you've noticed in the garden. So I'm excited about that. So just because I honestly am taking notes and okay. putting into my plan when I'm going to be doing these. So with the mulch application of the leaf that you do in the spring and in the fall, when are you adding in your, I, normally I add in manure in the fall so that it does have time to mm -hmm. fully compost down mm -hmm. again towards spring. Um, mm -hmm. Is that at the same time, if you're going to be adding a manure that you would also add that in would be the fall with the fall mulch or? Yeah. So let me, I'll answer that. And I will also say one of the things I love about the leaf mulch is the aesthetics. I'm a, you know, I, I'm big on aesthetics period, but with a, you know, we film a lot for my television show in my garden and so forth. So it really does need to look good uh, for the viewers. But for me personally, I mean, I'm my first line of judgment and I, I like the look of it too. Now to your question. Um, so I have a big compost pile too. So I'm having, I'm adding my greens and my browns, not just the leaves off to the side. And I even add leaves into my overall compost pile too as a carbon source. But then I have all of those other leaves off to the side doing their own thing. But um, I have chickens and so I have a lot of great nitrogen. I use coffee grounds for more nitrogen. And so that goes down as a top dressing before I add my seeds or seedlings in the spring and in the fall. So for me, that would be like first of April. And then two weeks later, I would be coming in and planting, but I would be top dressing with my compost or with some additional purchased compost if I don't have enough of my own. And that's probably about an inch and it's right on top. I don't work it in or till it in because uh, the, or, you know, the microorganisms are going to bring it down anyway. And then I sow or plant. And at the same time, I'm adding my leaf mulch. So it's the compost first, followed by the leaf mulch a couple weeks later. Okay. So the leaf is Same definitely a, a mulch. It's not just the only layer that you're putting in and that's how, okay. Perfect. Right, right. Okay. I, I got it now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. So this has been so, I am so excited to, to try it. And guys, if you're listening, if you can't tell from just this brief time we've been together, <laughs> you really want to check out Joe's podcast and your Instagram. You've actually, I followed you throughout the summer and you had yeah. some great tips and you pop in with just really practical tips that walk people mm -hmm. through the season as you're doing things in your own garden. Um, so you definitely want to go and, and check out all of his material. And then we didn't actually talk about your television show very, very much because I got sidetracked with tomato growing and, and no tilling <laughs> methods. Um, but so where can people check out? What episode are we going into season 11? Can, can yeah. give a few details for people who want to, you know, yeah, see the show and find it. It, it. it takes my breath away when I, when I stop and think I'm going into my second decade of my third television show, which this one is called Growing a Greener World. And it's a national show on PBS. So it's about organic gardening primarily, but it's also about inspiring people to lighten their environmental footprint and just live a healthier lifestyle. But I'm not going to lie, it's really a gardening show. And that's what it always was intended to be with a more contemporary flair on getting people to think more about an organic approach. And so, um, if you're, you know, your city should have it. We're in 96% of the country, but we just finished our 10th season. So, you know, it may or may, or may not be on 
at this moment in your city. It's just every, the, the frustrating thing about PBS is that every city runs their own schedule. So I can't tell you that my show is on Saturday mornings at 1030, no matter where you live. That would be, that's just not true. I, I have no idea of keeping up with the 500 PBS stations around the country that air my show at different times of the year or time of the week. So the easiest thing for me to tell people to do is go to our YouTube channel because what we do is we've taken every episode of the last two seasons, nine and 10, and we put them on our YouTube channel, which is GGWTV for Growing a Greener World TV. And they're all there. And we even upload them on the very day they go live on television. So you don't even have to wait for your station to even broadcast it. You can go straight like many people do. They go straight to our YouTube channel and watch it the day we post it. We post it like six in the morning Eastern time on the first day it can possibly be seen according to our licenses and stuff. So, Oh, perfect. Okay. Mm -hmm. And guys, as you know, we always have a blog post with all the resources and written show notes. So I'll make sure and have links to all of the, the places and, and the YouTube channel. So you can go and check that out. Um, I am just thrilled that there's an organic gardening show that is on television because there's a lot of gardening networks and channels and shows out there, but a lot of them don't really focus on the organic part. So I think it's awesome that your show does that. Well, I, I, they don't. And, you know, there's just not as many gardening shows as there used to be anyway. But because we, we decide who our underwriters and partners are going to be to help financially support us, we have turned away a lot of money that we could have had to help. And believe me, we need it. I mean, we need the underwriting for sure. But we put, you know, principal over pocketbooks and we just aren't going to take money from companies that don't align with our mission and our brand and our the stories and the, and the methodologies that we're trying to teach, you know, it would just be a disconnect and inauthentic and we don't want to be that. So yeah, there aren't very many organic shows for sure. No, there's not. So thank you for, for all of the work. I can't even imagine. I do my own YouTube videos and I know that's nothing compared to what you're doing. So my hat off to you for that many seasons and, and just all of the work that goes into that. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this and I can't wait to keep up with how things are going and what you're testing this year through, like you said, the YouTube and your podcast. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Melissa, for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Do you have a list of notes of tasks to do and or varieties to try now too? I hope so. And if you have any varieties that are a must grow that we didn't mention today, please do let me know. You can either leave it in a review of this episode. So I know you were listening to this episode on whatever app you're listening to this. You can go to today's show notes at melissakinoris.com forward slash 232. Let me know in the comments of that blog post, but I would love to hear about them. And you're going to want to make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss an episode because next week I have got a fabulous episode planned for you. And I'm going to be giving you the details about how you get on the wait list for the Pioneering Today Academy. We have not opened for new members since last year and February 19th of 2020, we are going to be opening the doors for new members. But if you're on that wait list, you are going to get some extra special things ahead of time. So make sure that you're subscribed and you tune in to next Wednesday's episode for more information. Okay. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. 
and I can't wait to be back here with you next week. Thank you.